When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Rains, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Brent Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealitiesConference.com. It's going to be amazing. We could, we could just go ahead and roll. Uh, I guess we kind of really have have started, so I uh, want to introduce everybody uh, to uh, Mr. David Perkins. Um, and the reason that, uh, David, I, I know that you listened, that you're actually a listener to Conspira Normal, which I'm really uh, happy to hear. And um, I also, you know, I, I heard you do a couple of interviews with a few years ago with uh, Greg Bishop. I guess that he uh, came, I guess one of those, he came to your house and, and did. And uh, there was another one that uh, I heard as well. And then as I'm reading, so I was like, always kind of wanted to have you on to talk about it because uh, the cattle mutilation phenomenon is something we haven't really, you know, we've touched on it, but we haven't really covered on, covered it like, I guess, in depth. And then earlier this year, reading the uh, Saucer Spooks and Kooks book by Adam Go Rightly, which you kind of figure prominently in at least the first part of it. Um, you were there in the early days of all this interesting stuff. So that's really the main reason we have you on. You know, we want to thank you for coming on the show. Oh, yeah. My pleasure, indeed. I mean, I don't get to talk about this stuff all that often, especially with knowledgeable people that are aware of what uh, the situation is. And you've done your reading. And, of course, I really enjoyed working on Adam's book, Saucer Spooks and Kooks book and writing the foreword to that, which I'd like right. to talk about at some point, and uh, helping with the research or whatever I could do to run down the details. And uh, that was really a fun experience. It was a pretty long haul to get that done, actually, but uh, it came out really well, I thought. Uh, so, uh, yeah, okay, back to um, the 1970s. I mean, I've been in this now for over 45 years. Just something to keep in mind, right? <laughs> 45 years of this. That's about as long as I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think I would have figured it out something by this 
time, but that just shows how incredibly difficult and complex the subject is. And uh, it's a lot of my uh, colleagues have fallen by the wayside, and I'm, you know, kind of um, creeping on in age myself. And it's like, well, it's sort of like to wrap this thing up, you know, and figure it all out. But I'm not sure if that's ever to be. I'm still optimistic that it's possible. I think I already have the answer. It's just I can't tell anybody. So um, <laughs> I would like to talk about A Strange Harvest, of course. And I think in Adam's book, you may have read about uh, <clears throat> me getting a call from, from Linda Howe. And she had been in, in touch with my partner, Tom Adams. Uh, are you guys familiar with Tom Adams and his work in the cattle mutilation realm? Uh, there's a book that uh, just came out that's his entire history of all his writing. All in one book, Ray Boucher was kind of instrumental in putting that out uh, and, and compiling it all. Uh, it's a great old big, thick book. Anyway, Tom Adams uh, put out a publication called Stigmata. I think that started in 78. And uh, as soon as that came out, I saw it and I went, wow, who is this guy? Uh, so uh, I may have actually been aware of him before that stigmata finally came out. But uh, anybody in the West who was in the mutilation business, and this was law enforcement, private investigators, everybody was keyed in on Tom. He was sort of like the clearinghouse for all this information. So when Linda Howe uh, got onto the story, I'd already been on it since 75, and she got into it somewhere 79 when we started filming uh, Strange Harvest. Uh, she got hold of Tom. Tom said, you got to call all day Perkins up there. He's you know in your neighborhood. She was in Denver at the time. I was in Southern Colorado, a community that I lived at. Uh, so she called me up and said, what's up with this? And we started talking and she, I said, well, I have a lot of files and papers and books and photos and stuff. She said, you got to get here immediately. I need to see this. So I loaded everything up and put it in my, what I call the mute mobile, which was an old Dodge station wagon, drove it up to Denver, spent about three days with her. Uh, she copied everything I had on the copy machine there at the TV station where she worked. And then we go out to dinner and talk about this and that. And she said, this has got to be a documentary. And then uh, we had uh, further meetings with some other people that were cinematography people. Uh, and start, she started piecing together the idea of, of the movie. Uh, but before that actually came about, I, we went out. I took her out on a road trip in the Denver area. And we, to see some of my contacts, people that had, had mutilations and uh, the various people, law enforcement guys that I had talked to and introduced her to all of them. We made sort of a preliminary round and that's where she got the idea of where to go and who to film and who to interview and this and that. So uh, those were the very early days and then I think I took her out on her very first mutilation case that was a fresh one which was down near where I lived and she came running down and uh, and film that one for Strange Harvest. So uh, we go way back to those days, and uh, she and I kind of have different viewpoints about the mutilations, I will say. 
Right. She she leans more toward a, an extraterrestrial, uh, well, not more, but definitely all the way to an extraterrestrial solution. And I lean toward, I don't know what you call it. Uh, it's we'll discuss that a little bit later. But yeah, yeah, we'll it's get def- to that. it's it's not. It doesn't rule out the possibility of ET involvement, but it doesn't rule it in by any means. Well, David, uh, let's. I want to rewind a little bit and talk about how you kind of ended up in Colorado, and because um, you're not from there originally, and then how specifically you got on to studying the cattle mutilation phenomenon. Yeah, good question. Uh, well, let's see. I migrated to Colorado during. Uh, I guess it was 1968 that uh, my wife and I came to Colorado and we were taking a tour of the West. We were actually working on uh, our master's thesis uh, for, uh, mine was on utopian communities in American history. Uh, So we were visiting hippie communes, in other words, (laughs) And, uh, and, and photographing and filming. And then we started getting into that life and seeing what was going on in the West at that time. It was very exciting. All kinds of people moving out of the cities, moving back to the land. Uh, There's a lot of freedom, a lot of music, a lot of good times, uh, a lot of work. And it seemed like something we wanted to do. At that point, the cities were pretty much falling apart from our point of view. I mean, it was Kent State. It was uh, anti-war movements. Uh, We were heavily involved in and protests and marching in the streets and street fighting man actions. So it was just getting to be a bit much. Uh, so we said, let's just get out of town and go back to the country and build a house up on top of a mountain, which we did. <laughs> uh, so that was, uh, that put us there in 1970, building a house, living in a teepee all winter in Colorado when it was 40 below zero at times. <laughs> wow. It was uh, not all of walk in the park, you know, but uh, it was really fun, really challenging. We were young. What the heck? It was a good time, good people. Uh, and we built a really interesting house built around a big boulder up there on top of this mountain, looking up at 15, uh, 14,000 foot peaks all around us. It was just like heaven. I mean, it was a gorgeous, beautiful place. Still is. I still have that house. So uh, we uh, ended up there and then. Uh, uh, at that time, I was uh, working in, as a musician in a rock band, so we traveled around the region a lot. And I, I always was aware of the news, of course. I'm news junkie, but uh, uh, along about 1975, the mutilations were the Associated Press Story of the Year in Colorado. It was the biggest story there was. Just uh, the governor went on TV and said, this is the greatest outrage in the history of the Western cattle industry, on and on. The cops were running everywhere. The sheriffs were bent out of shape. Nobody could be found. During that summer alone, uh, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation uh, said that there were 212 mutilated animals uh, that they had investigated. And I know that that is at least half of what what I tallied and I think the number was more like 550 and I think it was actually a great deal larger than that so we're talking about hundreds of these cases and they were happening in my neighborhood also as a matter of fact 
the first case I actually saw, I was the prime suspect, right? <laughs> it was, talk about bizarre. Uh, I was driving home and there, I saw this dead cow by the side of the road. And I went, oh, I wonder if that's one of those mutilated cows. I stopped and looked at it and was like, well, it doesn't look, something looks strange about this. And I noticed there were several drops of blood sort of leading on these white limestone rocks that were leading in the directions of my, of my house, which is about a mile up the road. And so I thought, well, that, that's kind of weird. So a day or so later, I drove into town, talked to the newspaper editor and said, what's going on? Was that a mutilation or is that what's happening here? And he said, you better go talk to the sheriff. And I said, what do you, why? Well, he thinks you're, you did it. <laughs> I'm the number one suspect because why am I so interested, right? It's like, oh my God, really? My very first case that I'm the prime suspect. So that's always been a bit of an irony there. But, of course, I did talk to the sheriff. I said, look, of course, the locals, you know, thought we were a bunch of beatnik uh, hippies, artists, and uh, were capable of anything. You have to remember, this is during the era of Manson and whatnot, so we're kind of operating in that milieu. But uh, they said, well, it must be those newcomers that moved in. They are into some weird stuff, so they probably did this. But I quickly talked the sheriff out of that idea, and then we became very good friends. And then he would call me, and we'd go out together and look at cases in our neighborhood. So this was in the mid to late 70s that this was happening around me. I mean, it was very close. So that, that uh, took off from there. Uh, this network developed with Linda Howe was very important, Tom Adams, Gary Massey, his partner. Uh we hung out a lot, and then uh, in later times, Chris O'Brien, my good colleague and partner, uh, moved into the area in the early 90s, and then I, I hooked up with, with Chris, and we've been partners on everything ever since. And these yeah. things are still happening, which is, uh, if it had all gone away, it would be one thing, but uh, right now the hot spot is Oregon. And uh, the, the Pacific Northwest and possibly on up into Canada and, and the Western provinces. Yeah, you don't seem to hear about it very much anymore. Um, but but it, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It just that it means that, like, the, I guess the media attention and even, like, the paranormal media, I guess, doesn't even really report on it that, as much. It's true. And uh, it's, God, when you think, it's, what a long haul this has been all the way since Snippy the Horse, by the way which was 1967, right. and that was not far from where we, where we uh, were. We got the people that, that started the commune in 68. Uh, they got there right after Snippy had happened. Uh, so anyways, it had gone from that until today, basically. And I noticed uh, NPR picked up on this, the Oregon cases, and that was sort of a unusual, let's say. Mm -hmm. Because in general, those cases had been only covered by the local newspaper uh, in those areas, right? So the fact that NPR picked up on it and went out and sent an actual reporter and they did, did a piece on it, and they got a whole bunch of blowback from people. It's like, what are you thinking? This is the craziest stuff we ever heard in our life. You're supposed to be NPR, a responsible news source, and here you're putting out this crazy stuff about extraterrestrials and cattle mutilations and satanic cults and 
on and on. So they took a bit of a gamble on that one, but they said, hey, it's news. You know, we're, we're just reporting the news. And they did report it very accurately, actually. And uh, I have no complaint with, with their coverage. So it did pop its head back up. Uh, but <clears throat> it's interesting that it, it, the mutilations are sort of like, a, I don't know, an orphan to the paranormal. Uh, it's something that not that many people want to mess with. It's sort of like the way I feel about, uh, uh, I don't know, my labs or something, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, it's like, oh, really? I just can't face this. You know, this is just too much. Uh, and it's grisly and it's gory and it's scary. Uh, so it's one of those things that people would like to keep at arm's length, which makes it very hard to investigate. A lot of the ranchers don't even bother to report them because they think it's a sort of a stigma. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them think that it's the work of the devil, for that matter, and they bury them right away. So uh, there are all kinds of hindrances to investigating these things. Uh, and the UFO communities had a love-hate relationship with mutilations all the way back to the beginning. It started off with uh, when Snippy the horse got mutilated, uh, APRO was all over it and sent uh, one of their main people up to investigate, and they were saying, yeah. Looks like a flying saucer mutilated that cow, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, they got on the bandwagon with that. And then a few years later, they got off that bandwagon and joined in with Kufos uh, and saying, oh, no, no, this is all Satanist called. It's a national cult that's doing this and has nothing to do with UFOs. So they threw it all out again. And so, so it's come and gone in the UFO world. Uh, whether this is indeed a, a product of uh, whatever a UFO is, <laughs> is if they're any way related, I think they are, but probably in not in ways most people would imagine. But uh, uh, so it, it's it's one of those. This uh, it's not like a fairy or it's uh, or some light in the sky or something distant or something pleasant. It's got a natural repulsion factor built into it, which makes a whole, not a whole lot of people want to go after because they just think, oh, I don't know what it is, but this doesn't look good. Right. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can totally see that. And, you know, I guess like the basics of it, what would be some of the signs that you could tell like a cow was mutilated in some weird way as opposed to just like you know, maybe picked off by a coyote or something? Yeah, well, that's a good question. And uh, uh, Chris O'Brien's uh, telltale test, basically, is to get down close to uh, where what we call the cuts, whether whatever is happening there. Uh, get close with a magnifying glass and look at it and see if the, hair are actually, the hairs are actually cut. And you can whether it's ragged or whether it's chop. Uh, and he said that is the telltale test. I'm not sure that's the only test that makes sense. But uh, what, what the typical animal looks like is uh, there's a section of, first of all, the genitals are usually revolve, uh, involve whether it's male or female. Uh, it's missing its genital area, and it's missing uh, its rectal area. This is commonly described as cord out. 
And then uh, you get into other areas of the body. The udder sometimes is removed or uh, patch of skin here and there. And, there, and it w- appears to be neat, precise cuts. And especially the ones on the face, uh, which is another one. It's a kind of a looping cut around the, the mandible, the section of the cow, its jawbone, basically. I just saw some photos that came from Argentina recently, and it sure looked like the same thing we're dealing with here. And it was pretty amazing. Uh, so, and it's, uh, the, the skin is removed on those jaw cuts right down to the bone. So the bone is almost, looks bleached. And the cut looks very precise and neat. Uh, and people say, well, an animal, a, be- a bird could peck that circle. It could peck this and peck that. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I've seen enough of them myself, scores of them, that, uh, and I stop and look at any animal that's dead and just say, okay, what, what happened to this one? And, and I can generally tell that looks like the died a natural death and was chewed on by predators. Sure. That looks like what, that's what happened. And with the actual mutilation, you stop and look at it, it's like, wait a minute. This doesn't look natural at all, not to what I've seen. I mean, I've lived in the West for 50 years, you know, so I see these things and I know the ranchers and I know who we're dealing with here. And when they come and tell me something unusual happened to their cow and their fourth generation ranching cat, the family, I tend to believe them that something unusual happened, right? Suddenly weren't victims of a collective delusion overnight. Did you ever have a case where maybe a rancher thought that there was something weird going on, and then you went over there and you said, oh, yeah. well, it, it is normal predation. Do you ever have anything like that? Yeah, there have been quite a few that have kind of been iffy one way or the other. Uh, it'd be, it was kind of hard to tell. Yeah. And, and, and plus, we, when we see them, I mean, I haven't had the opportunity to see a whole lot of them absolutely fresh. Uh, I've seen several, but, uh, you know, Generally, by the time we get the word and a day or two passes, they're sitting in the hot sun, three days pass, you're over there and it's really rotten. And it's like, oh my. That's got to be, that's got to be nice. It's gross. It's just awful. And, but we get in there and poke around, try to figure out what happened. Uh, but there have been mistaken uh, ones and, and uh, I'd say a fair amount are, are people kind of get, uh, get really nervous about the whole deal and call up and say, I think our animal was mutilated. And the vets go over is like, no, this is, you know, magpies did this or whatever that happens. Yes. And we know that. And so, but we don't count those as, as classics. Right. But what, what we do count as classics, uh, we're talking about thousands of animals now going back for years. Uh, so, uh, you can't exactly sweep down under the rug. I've tried. <laughs> I've tried to every trick in the book to try to uh, explain this to myself. And I haven't been, you know, all that outgoing about it. I mean, I do lectures, I write articles, this, that, and the other, but uh, I don't go around uh, proselytizing about it because it's more of a personal curiosity and a personal quest. And I, I, I don't like to, uh, I would like to present uh, you know, some sort of unified answer the best I could come up with, say, after 50 years, here's my best shot at what is going on here. And you may not like it, but this is what I came up with after 50 years. So there you go. Uh, and uh, I'm not quite there. And 
And I don't think even that will be that convincing to most people. It's not even that convincing to me. It's just an incredibly difficult subject. And uh, the, the most common explanation is the collective delusion, right? And that's how most skeptics put this whole thing down. That suddenly the ranchers and farmers just said, oh, we're under so much pressure and stress and we're going broke and everything's crazy. The world's crazy and our cow got mutilated. And it's like, wait a minute, wait. And they just freak out and call the sheriff and the vet and say, our cow got mutilated. And so, uh, but in actuality, it, it was a natural kill. That happened. So, but um, that is the most common way that they're dismissed. Is it, it was a collective delusion involved thousands of people and everybody. Uh, you know, there, there's a history of of uh, mania and hysterias and all kinds of stuff, that, and episodes of collective delusions and uh, tons of stuff like that. But I, I've never seen anything quite like this that lasts this long. Yeah, I was going to make that point that this is something that has gone on literally for years. And even as we made the point that like the media does really doesn't really focus on it anymore, but it still happens and people are still people are still dealing with it. I wonder if the ranchers have become after so much time whether they've become really blasé about it and like it's just oh it's just something that happens and like. I can imagine at the time that you were researching that maybe the level of fear might have been off the chain, but now maybe they're just more like we don't know what's going on and they just go on. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, that's very true. Uh, it's just part of the cost of doing business, as one guy said. Yeah. Uh, uh, but um, I think what, what I realized uh, – in recent times, I guess, is the amount of sheer terror that these cause, these incidents caused these small town communities. Mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, I don't know, a few years back, I was on an airplane and this young lady was sitting next to me and I just started chatting and uh, she told me where she was from and I went, oh, it was an area on the uh, west side of Pikes Peak that it had a lot of mutilations and they weren't very well publicized. It wasn't a big city area, right? And I said, well, by any chance, do you know anything about the cattle mutilations that happened over there where you live? And she just froze and she said, oh my God, yes. They ruined my childhood, right? <laughs> but she said we couldn't go in. She was a young teenage girl at the time. So her parents wouldn't let her go out at night. Uh, they, they were lived in terror and every and helicopters were flying around as who is that is that them is that the mutilators they're going to get us they're going to get our girls i mean it was she said that it, they call them the helicopters the helicopters are coming back tonight so but that you know it's not just a some little innocuous annoying thing i mean it really put fear and dread into these these people in these small town communities and they were armed with the teeth uh all the time and and uh, that was getting to be a, a law enforcement problem because they're starting to shoot at helicopters like the utility company helicopters. Oh. <laughs> so uh, it got a little out of hand there. When did that relationship to the presence of helicopters really first start um, to be noticed? 
that's another thing that, uh, well, I, I, at this point, I've got to plug Chris O'Brien's book, and I worked on it a lot. Uh, and, it, and it contains a lot of my uh, material for my databases and photos and whatnot. And we, we, we've worked every project he's written together. I've written forward to all of his books and participated in the research to a large degree. You're but, speaking um, of Stalking the Herd, correct? Yes, yeah, Stalking the Herd by Christopher O'Brien. And uh, anybody that's seriously interested in this phenomenon should go get the darn book and read it. Uh, because it's a, it's about 600 pages, and even then we had to stop because it was just getting out of hand. So we're actually working on a follow-up, which is just an analysis of all the different theories about the mutilations. Anyway, back to your question. Uh, in in his book, he do, he does a good job of detailing where the helicopters entered the picture, and it was uh, it's something probably most people don't realize. Uh, the helicopters in this context are more like UFOs than they are like helicopters. They do UFO type things. They come and go, they disappear, they disappear in midair. I mean, they have no point of origin and no point of return. And, uh, we don't know who's in them and what their objective is or their goals or their, their project, their agenda. Uh, so it, it started basically around, uh, I think the helicopters really entered the picture in 73. Uh, 71, there was a smattering of mutilations in the upper Midwest. Uh, and at that time, people were kind of looking at the UFOs because they were, uh, they were whatever it was, were leaving these circles in the fields in the snow in Minnesota, for instance. And the locals were saying, it looked like a UFO landed and burned a circle here. But those were called helicopters then, and they weren't even seen as UFOs. It was just the circles. Uh, 1972 was really weird because there were no mutilations anywhere. So th that kind of cuts, shuts down the collective delusion ideas. Like, wait a minute, everybody, they, they were collectively deluded uh, from Snippy in 67 to 71, and then in 72, nobody was deluded that year. <laughs> and then in 73, everything just picked up again, like crazy. Uh, and this was largely, uh, the helicopter aspect was largely centered in, I don't know what section of the, you, you call it, Missouri, Arkansas, Texas, Iowa, uh, right in that kind of, Red Basket area, a lot in Missouri. And it started off as pig wrestling. People were describing it as like these helicopters, these unmarked helicopters came and they made off with a whole bunch of our, our pigs. And it's like, okay, I've got all these clippings. I went back and found all of this stuff. And it's like, well, that's unusual. Uh, so then it, first it was that. And then it was uh, a little more action going on with the people uh, on the ground and the people in the so-called helicopters, uh, like shooting back and forth. There was gunfire. <laughs> the ranchers, the farmers and were shooting at the craft and somebody in the craft was apparently shooting back. There were several of those stories. And this in, seemed to involve uh, pig wrestling primarily. There might have been a few cows thrown into that mix. 
So that's the first appearance of the helicopters in this phenomenon, basically. And they were all kinds of descriptions, like olive green, large, small, no markings, uh, doing crazy aerial maneuvers. And a few instances, uh, a helicopter and a fixed wing aircraft were both involved in some sort of rustling scheme. I mean, who, who rustles pigs in a fixed wing aircraft? <laughs> or a helicopter, for that matter. I mean, really. It seems so anyway, like overkill, these, yeah. <laughs> this, that's a bit much. Uh, but these guys were having, the farmers were shooting at these things. And then, well, one of the stories, is the guy was on the ground. He was shooting at the helicopter. And then uh, somebody on the ground started shooting at him. So he didn't know exactly, he didn't, couldn't tell where it was coming from. But it was somewhere on the edge of the, the forest there. So there's this, this gun battle, the helicopters flying around. Anyway, no helicopters were ever found. None of them crashed. None of them were ever identified. And uh, my colleague, Tom Adams, put together a whole paper on this, a book, actually. and uh, It's called The Choppers and the Choppers. And he details the whole history of the, of the so-called helicopters in the mutilation stories. And he has 200 cases where they... What they are, what are called helicopters, show up at the, these uh, areas and are aren't implicated in the mutilations. I should add that nobody has actually ever seen a human being or any kind of entity uh, other than a critter, you know, like a coyote, at the site of a mutilation. Never once. This goes to this includes places like Skinwalker and all that, which I'm very familiar with that case. Uh, but so somehow there have never been a human being associated with helicopters. There have been quite a few of cha helicopters chasing people uh, in the mutilation areas and interacting with them with, you know, hostile intent, apparently. Uh, so this uh, that was 73 when all that busted out, the helicopter stuff. Well, that's interesting that there were no no uh, helicopters seen in 72 because it coincides with an election year. Well, that's a good point. Yeah, we couldn't find anything at all in 72. Uh, there was one ca case, I believe, of 50 caribou found in a circle mysteriously dead in Canada in 72. That's the only thing we could come up with. Uh, so, yeah, we've, we've matched this against political years, against recessions, against... Mm -hmm. Well, every kind of uh, up and down of the culture, and you can't seem to find any correlation that makes a whole lot of sense, uh, except for that gaping 72. It's almost like they made a stab at it at 71 and said, they, when I say they, whoever they are, <laughs> they, loosely they, uh, it was kind of like a trial run. And then then they came back gangbusters in the spring of 73 and, and especially in places like Iowa and Missouri with these unmarked helicopters. And they showed up then, uh, 74 was a fairly light year, but 75 all hell broke loose in the, in the West. I think it was like 20 some States full bore, everything, helicopters, Colorado, a lot of helicopters involved. And there people speculated it was some kind of, commando mission out of Fort Carson in Colorado Springs. So, of course, that was never, never panned out. And uh, 
And meanwhile, the uh, that year there were a lot of cattle mutilations and all kinds of craft sighted: UFOs, saucers, helicopters, anything you can imagine flying around. That somehow got mentioned during that year, and that was stretched all the way up into Montana. And that, of course, was the fall of '75 when the, when we had the overflights of all the military bases across the northern tier, the SAC bases and stuff. Uh, so that, especially in Montana, that coincided. Uh, so things started getting tangled up there a little bit with the UFOs and the relations in 75 in particular. And, and the helicopter, well, if you look at a case like Malmstrom Air Force Base, which is very well documented with FOIA documents and a book called Mystery Stalks the Prairie, which, by the way, has just been reissued, I noticed, on Amazon. Uh, Mystery Stucks the Prairie by Keith Wolverton, who's the deputy sheriff. It's been out of print for years. It's $150 if you can find it used. <laughs> but um, it, it's a really good little book, and uh, he talks about everything that was happening around the missile sites, the mutilations, the cult sites, the helicopters, the flying saucers, the really weird saucers. Uh, cryptids, Bigfoot's running around, uh, everything, uh, all in a mix. And I've got a lot of the, the original documents from NORAD in particular about they, what they describe as the missile sites being overflown by what they call fast-moving, brightly lit objects or craft, and then also say helicopters. So apparently they chased whatever it was, thinking it was a helicopter with a jet, and they couldn't catch it. Now, does that make sense? No. No. Yeah. <laughs> so. that's, that's weird. But the Helicopter Association kind of came first, and then with these later UFO flaps, did that start becoming more convoluted? But like you said, the helicopters weren't like normal helicopters. So. Yeah, I think that's, that's the order of events. It, of course, Snippy is kind of like kind of out one of a kind uh, in 1967 because people were describing what they described as, well, the headline was a flying saucer killed my horse. Uh, that went all over the world, Associated Press and uh, the news services. And in China, they went, oh, a flying saucer killed her horse. Wow. Uh, so, and then along with that were these other little objects that they called the little jets. I don't know what they were. They show up every once in a while, even in our valley. And they're small craft, about 12 feet long. And they fly really low to the ground, right off the ground, basically, and follow the roads for the most part. And they were flying around the time that Snippy was mutilated in 67. But I had still cases of those happening until not that long ago from very reputable, solid community members that aren't UFO people by any means. Chris O'Brien said he saw them himself. And so we don't know what those things were. I mean, they're probably some sort of drone. I don't know what, I mean, we've got, we're in a military operations area in that area of Colorado. So anything goes, right? Anything goes. It's interesting. They, they, they could be flying anything. I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff and I just assume it's some sort of drone action. Sure. Yeah. Especially now. But I don't hear, yeah. I never hear anything. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that this, the, the whole cattle mutilation phenomenon really kind of starts with a horse. Is that because you hear about the cows? Yeah. Is it, are, are horses common to find as well? Not 
common, but not terribly unusual either. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I, I'm kind of guessing if you look at the overall numbers, I would say horses are 10% or less. Uh, but could be slightly more than that. But then we, we get these other, other sort of adjunct outbreaks that which, uh, for instance, there was a big episode of uh, horse slashing and killing in France and in Europe, Europe in the last couple of years. Did you guys ever hear, run across that? No. no. Didn't make, make much of a dent here, but it was really a big deal in Europe, especially France. And we're talking a lot, uh, well over 100, as I recall. And there again, it's like nobody, no culprit, no, you know, the, the French police said, oh, it must be some sort of crazy killer cult. And they do this for kicks or they use this blood in their rituals or all this stuff. Never any evidence of that whatsoever. Uh, but it scared the hell out of the, the French people and there again. And it was terrorizing to these communities. And these were some pretty fancy horses. And what they were describing, uh, they were described, well, they had one scenario the, the cops did of like, oh, these cultists showed up in their trailer and they had a portable generator and they used the portable generator to run the laser and do the cuts on these cows, uh, horses, I should say. And it's like, well, wait a minute. You went, who runs around with a portable generator out in the pastures in France in the middle of the night and doesn't draw any notice? Uh, yeah. So all their explanations were just absurd. Uh, but nobody could ever figure out what happened. These actually spread on around into the surrounding countries, I believe, uh, into Germany and uh, England, Belgium, uh, maybe one other country there. But this horse slashing thing sort of came and went. I haven't heard anything about it in a few months now, but it was huge. And I thought, well, whoever this is, they're really getting around, man. They're covering a lot of miles here. And the thing is, you go into these small communities and everybody says, recognizes that you're not from there. You know, you're just not, you don't fit in. And they keep an eye on you because you're slightly suspicious. But uh, how anybody could get around and do that much damage I have no idea. So is that part of the cattle mutilation phenomena or not? And where do you put it? You put it over, off to the side. In the same way, for Chris and I are really having a hard time figuring out what the South American situation is. Uh, because there were a lot of mutilations in Canada uh, during the, the, the time when it was really happening. And it was a big deal. The, the Mounties up there were all over it. The, it was all over the news. Everybody was freaked out. Uh, so they were right in there with America in terms of when and where they were happening, basically. But you get to go to South America, and it's just hard to say what is really happening. But the numbers that we're seeing are like in the vicinity of 3,000 to 3,500 in Argentina alone, uh, in perhaps the last 10 years, I'd say. So, I mean, and that down there, the newspapers, of course, are. Say, so, oh, it's the it's the chupacabras are doing this, and then right. uh, there are no oddly enough, there are no helicopter reports down there. It's all old-fashioned flying saucers uh, that they're reporting. So it's like, well, where are the helicopters? Uh, so 
Uh, we get all kinds of strange reports from there that are just so <laughs> unbelievable. And and we don't speak Spanish, really, and, uh, and we don't have a good source there. And we get all the clippings and stuff. And Scott Corrales keeps us involved and uh, informed, I should say. Uh, but about what comes that his way and our way, but it's, uh, it's not, it's just a whole lot of South and Central American countries. And they're saying, well, the racier papers now, newspapers say, oh, that's the U.S. CIA. They're doing their, their <laughs> dirty work down here on us because we can't do anything about it. It's like, well, yeah, okay. So any American military, uh, group or whatever is going to go down there and run around in a foreign country and kill and mutilate hundreds, thousands of animals? I don't think so. Maybe, but I don't think so. So if we could establish that, uh, what I think I have established is that uh, Australia is having the same kind of situation that the United States is. So here we've got United States, Canada, Australia. All right, we're all in the same boat together, let's face it. Uh, but once you start stepping into Uruguay, Paraguay, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, uh, I'm not sure how much weight we carry down there in terms of being able to, to run uh, commando psyop yeah. op operations yeah. or whatever. What would be the reach, right? Yeah. That, that would be, and, and if any one of them got caught, it would just be a catastrophe uh, politically in every which way. Uh, but so they, they try, try to blame it. They say, oh, it's those X-File things. And they, uh, it's like the X-Files and they're sending the CIA down to get these parts because they need them for their evil experiments. So it's okay. Hmm. Well, I don't know about that. But that doesn't really track because I, well, what what experiment could they possibly you know like right. they could just breed cows? Yeah, well, there, there's there's a good point. See, and that's the one that comes up over and over uh, because unless the whole project, I mean, if you go back to something like the the Ben Benowitz affair, unless it was uh, kind of a dual objective, which is to uh, run a see how successful a psyop op operation could be, uh, how you could disorient the locals and create chaos and confusion and cover other secret projects, plus gather whatever cow material you needed for your purposes for whatever experiments you were running, or uh, ball it all up into one confusing mess so nobody could ever decipher what was really going on underneath it all. And they still can't to this day with something like Dulce, New Mexico. That would be one long running psyop. Yeah. yeah that would really. No David, bit. this might be a good place uh, for me to just jump in and ask. Um, sure. You were at the uh, Harris and Schmidt's uh, 1979 uh, mutilation uh, sort of conference, I guess. Yeah. Correct. Um, and that's it. <laughs> It sort of feels like a like a like a real moment in in the in the subculture because you had so many players there. You had Gabe Valdez was there, Paul Benowitz was there, uh, you were there, Tom Adams was there. Um, you know, obviously, uh, uh, Harrison Schmidt was there. You know, former astronaut, right? Oh yeah. Um, Second to you know, last man on the moon. Yeah, that's right. Um, what? 
Wait, was Myrna Hansen in the room? Do you remember? No. Would you even know? Did you ever speak to Myrna? I never did. No. Okay. I don't um, know many. I don't know many people that did, and I don't even know if she's a real person. Oh well, that's an interesting. Uh, <laughs> right, and I'm quite certain that's not her name. Very uh, interesting. Well, that's another story, but uh, Myrna. Let's see. The, the conference. I was the lead speaker. I guess the keynote speaker it was called, and that was the doing of Gay Valdez, and I was tight with him. And he and Schmidt, for some reason, sent me in first. And this was the craziest thing I've ever done in my life. I've never seen so many cops since my last bus, really. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, 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 no. That's just a joke. But, I mean, every law enforcement and SWAT team and FBI and every shady covert operator you can imagine was in that room. And all the tribal police and a whole bunch of crazy new age people and I don't know, curiosity uh, seekers or whatever, thrill seekers just wondering what the heck was going on, all kinds of corporate people. And they send me as like, you go in there and set us up. It's like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Yeah. So I just gave a very general discussion. It's like, this is really important and we should pay attention to it. And, you know, got out of there, but uh, that was April of 79. Myrna Hansen didn't ha happen till May of 80. So that's, it was about a year or so later that the Hansen incident took place. But, and Linda Howe wasn't into mutilations quite at that point either. So she wasn't there, but uh, Tom got up and gave his helicopter speech and, a whole bunch of people. Uh, it was I've never seen anything like it. <laughs> Adam did a really good job of describing it in, in Saucer Spooks and Kooks that whole scene. I've never seen anything like it before or since. But uh, what it did was it, it created the conditions for the Rommel report, which was uh, the ex FBI agent who's got this big grant to study mutilations, which he didn't study at all. It was a preset answer that he knew he was going to come up with, which was like, it's all misidentifications. And supposedly that will be the end of it. Well, did you have any other? Any I, I, I mean, I guess what I was wondering your general impressions and I, and I think we got them um, in terms of just, you know, what the, what the mood around that event was, because it really, I mean, and, and, you know, in Adam's book, um, it's very uh, crystallized that this is kind of like the wellspring for almost like the entire UFO culture for the, you know, it's like this uh, CBGB's moment where it's like oh. everybody's in one place and then everything that comes out of here is, is really going to be like what sets the course for the culture, you know, basically to the present day. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just, you know, like I, I mean, you saying that you, had never experienced a, you know, another a thing like that, I think uh, is pretty telling because uh, obviously yeah. you've been around the block a couple of times. Yeah. It's still, still puzzles me why Schmidt would even do that. I mean, I could have told him if I had been his political advisor, I would have said, do not do this. You're going to get slimed by this. I guarantee you. And you're going to lose the next election, which he did. Yeah. What they did is all the, the hardcore conservatives came out and said, 
Schmidt's lost his mind. He hangs out with a bunch of crazy, beat Nick, hippie, conspiracy, cultist, freakos, <laughs> <laughs> my friends. And, yeah. uh, and uh, he's come back down to earth, Senator Schmidt, take care of your people and this, that, and the other. And sure enough, he got beat. And I think that was the largest factor. And they used it in all the ads against him. And I'm going like, oh, man, I could have warned you. But I think he got he got sucked into it. And he wasn't real excited about uh, promoting this job for Kenneth Rommel, that's being the director of this probe, supposedly, in which he never went out and looked at any cattle. He just uh, wrote it up as if, uh, oh, all these people are mistaken, and this is all gay Valdez's fault, you know, because he wants publicity. And uh, they turned into political football. And... It was a mess. And I, I find it a little odd when I think about it. Uh, I've just been working on another book. A friend of mine wrote a book called uh, Un Unusual Suspects. She's a Taos News reporter that covered mutilations in, 19, in the 1990s. So she's written her own book. It's really good. I'm writing the foreword to that. But in the course of working on that book with her, we went through the FBI files and FBI vault. It's pretty interesting what they do have there, uh, which we had to unravel. It's very hard to do, but it's all there. If you if you go in the, the vault, uh, it's under animal mutilations. It's not under cattle mutilations. That's why a lot of people can't find it. <coughs> Excuse me. Anyway, so it's supposedly 700 pages or something like that. Uh, but it all ends, it stops on a dime the day the Rommel Report comes out in May of uh, that year. So uh, there's no further additions of any variety. They just said the case closed. It's over. Don't ever contact us about this again. It's done. Almost like they had to do it. <laughs> right. So, so that's, that's the final word on it. And which is odd because until that time they had been collecting every weird newspaper clipping or cartoons or anything that had mentioned the FBI or mutilations. They just been throwing it in that, that file. And then suddenly it's like, nope, this file is closed. There'll be no further additions to this file. Uh, and that last file in that group was not even complete. It said, you know, uh, at the top, the cover letter on that particular last file said something like, but what follows is 90 pages about the, the mutilations. It was actually only about 50 some. It's like, well, where are the other 40 some pages? What happened to them? Uh, I don't know. Maybe we made a mistake when we counted them in the first time. I mean, something's odd about the whole deal, let's face it. Uh, but, but from their point of view, they couldn't solve it. And I think, uh, and they knew it. And I, I think that kind of brings us back to, in a way, to where we are now uh, with the uh, UAP report, for instance. This is jumping ship a little bit. <laughs> But it's, it's what I wrote about in the foreword to Adam's book, which is, the bottom line is, they don't know. And they're covering up the fact that they don't know. And they're using, they're playing footsie with us, civilians, uh, by saying, oh, we might have it. And letting the Russians think, we might have this technology. Well, how do you know we don't? Well, maybe we do. And it's like... Uh, 
like the cattle mutilations, they got to a point, everybody involved with it really, got to a point, it's like, we cannot solve this. Just like we've gotten to with the UFO situation right now. People like you guys, people have been in this for quite some time uh, who have studied every kind of UFO report and abduction reports and every form of weirdness associated. And, he's, and we're still sitting around scratching our heads like, what is this? What the hell is this? Is it extraterrestrial? Or maybe is it this? Maybe, maybe. Uh, so I think anybody that enters into it, I mean, kind of follow the works of Jacques Vallée, where he, you know, how he sees it over all those years. And he gets to the point, I don't know. Maybe uh, let's follow all the different threads here. I mean, we've got to keep pursuing it. But uh, I mean, I've got use a couple of quotes, I think, in Adam's foreword, which is uh, that he would be very surprised if the government knew substantially more than civilians do about what UFOs are, and that the answer is not to be found in some classified drawer in a government uh, department. That's not where we're going to find the answer. But I think it's a gigantic bluff all the way through, perhaps since the 40s, when they realized, uh, oh, geez, we can't figure this out. And whatever it is, is <laughs> and then they kept saying, well, it doesn't seem to be attacking us or anything. So maybe we just got to leave it alone. It's just, just leave it over here. And, but meanwhile, for their purposes, and this is where I get conspiratorial, uh, that by creating that belief system, that sort of mythology is where I, what I call it, that they may or probably do have the answer, uh, that is a justification for unbelievable amount of money flowing their way for the so-called military-industrial complex. Yep. Uh, so Agreed. Yep. You see where I'm going with this. And uh, yep. not one person, I, I don't think, that said read Adam's book has mentioned that little detail. And to me, that was the, the main point of my forward. And I think that that's what they were doing with Benowitz. And I think since the, I wrote the foreword for Adam's book, I, I've come to think that there was a counterintelligence was a larger part of all of that scenario than I had at first thought. And basically confusing the Russians and our adversaries and figuring out who's spying and uh, trying to keep our you know, regular old secret secret. Uh, that was a, a really big part of it. And so they created a giant mess in Dulce, which really uh, just blew everybody away. Like, we can't figure out what's going on. Are they testing something in Kirtland Air Force Base? Is this for real? Uh, it, it just muddied the water so bad. So, but the bottom line is still like, well, we know the secrets and you don't, and we might have the technology and we might have Area 51 craft and we might have this, we might have that. They don't have it. They just don't have it. Yeah, it was just a, just a... Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Smoke screen. Just a smoke screen to cover up something like the B2, you know? I mean, it's just... Yeah. I mean, which which is what people were probably seeing in the late in the like late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, I think there was maybe even a further advanced craft than that but uh probably yeah uh, so i mean if you're looking at a, this is as close as i get to conspiracy i guess but the mutilations sort of get uh, are similar and that they couldn't they could never figure it out the fbi really from the beginning did not want to touch him with a 10-foot pole whether that was they took one look at it and went oh crap oh dear oh dear oh dear uh we can't figure this one out uh, we're, and we'll probably never figure this one out. So we better act like it just never happened. So let's send this guy in there and say, it never happened. It was all, you guys uh, misinterpreted natural kill. And no matter how much black they took, that's kind of stuck. And that was the end of their involvement with it. Uh, so they knew they couldn't win. So why, why would you want to, like, if you're the U.S. military, get into a game that you can't win? You can't explain it. If you say that they're here, but we can't do anything about it, that, that uh, decreases public confidence, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you say there might be here and we might have their stuff, so you better keep supporting us because you never know. We might ha- you know, have to fight them someday or uh, who knows what. But it, it's an elaborate house of cards that they built, which is, is based on largely on corporate interests when you get down to it. And if you look at this uh, military-industrial complex, it's like now all of these major entities have aligned. The, you know, the the political world, the corporate world, the military world—they all have the same objectives, which is control. Well, if you look at how if you look at how Robert Bigelow is just so invested in so much of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, if anybody is tied into military-industrial complex, I mean, he would be one of the guys. Well, yeah, boy. <laughs> Boy, is he ever. Uh, yeah, and then when he goes on 60 Minutes and says there are aliens among us, I mean, how did that strike you guys when you saw that? Well, I mean, it's the character of Bob Bigelow, you know? Uh, I mean, yeah. that's that's really like what he's been edging towards all this time with the, um, you know, funding the Roper Report and... Um, I mean, you know, he's been hanging out with all kinds of weird cats for a long time, you know, owning a skinwalker, studying skinwalker, selling skinwalker to another fellow billionaire. Um, right. You know, it, it, it's weird. It, it's weird that he sort of seems to have been showing his cards in, in that case because he, he's never really been, you know, he, like he's never been on TV talking about that stuff that I can recall um prior but but yeah. you know i i don't know that that just feels like another another level of the game to him or to me you know from him yeah a lot of the true believers they get real upset and they're like oh well you know they they've got other ways to to 
appropriate this money for their projects. But I mean, even if this can, this whole type of disinformation campaign, social engineering, whatever, if it's gone on for decades, um, it's a small price to pay, even if it has just a small effect of helping to justify a portion of these budgets. Cause these budgets are absolutely astronomical. And, and where's what is the deal on these black black budgets? You know, I mean, how much really is uh, we're bickering over a few billion here and there for daycare or something or other? And like, what is in these gigantic budgets? Yeah. What is they, up, what they is need up? that PR bad? Like, and if this helps, you know, then I think we look at things like you yeah. know the the black budget and the the military industrial complex and it seems really cut and dry and it seems really simple and I bet well I don't bet I'm I'm positive that if you really started to break that stuff down it just becomes so much more complex and so much more multifaceted that you know like the 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 version of it that a lot of people think that you know oh they they're doing this to justify this or they're doing that to justify that and I almost feel like it's way more moving parts than that, right? It's got to be. Like the amount of money we're talking about, the amount of power that's being wielded, the amount of bureaucracy that goes into making any of these decisions, um, right. And, right. and the amount of ob- obfuscation that you know goes into you know concealing aspects of that while allowing other aspects of that to be seen. I mean... You know, yeah. it just it just yeah. layers on layers on. You know, it's like a phyllo dough. Uh, if you right. watch baking shows on TV, um, where you know they're just they fold it again and again and again, and at at the end of it, you know, we're just left to puzzle over. You know, I mean, we might as well be, uh, you know, people looking up at the stars. You know, a thousand years ago, wondering how they get from here to there. You know, who knows? Right. right. Although, um, but maybe that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you specifically, David, um, you know, but in, in various places, including, um, in saucer spooks and kooks, but also, um, mirage men, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure project beta as well, you know, sort of all the books that revolve around that world. Um, there's a, a pretty heavy implication that, um, the mutilations that were going on in Colorado were probably terrestrial and they were probably there tracing uh, some kind of fallout or radiation seepage from the gas buggy uh, project. Um, Now that tracks, in other words, the first time I heard it explained to me, I said, well, yeah, that, that just makes so much sense. I'm wondering, especially in light of what we just discussed, do you do you feel that that's a reasonable explanation for the activity going on there at that time and and how do you feel about that explanation when you apply it to you know obviously there are way more mutilations than what was going on you know in Colorado you know in Pete Domenici's backyard at that time uh how how like what do you think of that explanation and, well I think and, it's pretty good because <laughs> Because I came up with much of it. Uh, I put out a paper back in those days called Proximity Relationships. Mm-hmm. And it got some news play. And the headline was, Spokesman says, mutilations are 
test animals for radiation or something like that. That was me. So I, I spent a long time and I had this map, which I actually took to the Schmidt conference, which was this big board with a map of the U.S. and Canada. And I had pins in it for all the mutilations. Not every one because I had to have representative pins, but it was just covered with pins basically. And with different, and then different um, nuclear facilities and all the nuclear power plants and uh, dumps and uranium mining and every single thing in the nuclear chain and to see if there was any correlation. And it sure looked to me like there was a correlation. I looked at it and I went over and over and over it. And it just seemed to me that somebody was interested in the nuclear uh, cycle. And, and uh, I think somebody just said, uh, why not buy, if you're going to do arcane experiments on animals, why not just buy them at this friggin' stockyard and go over and do your experiment or raise them yourself or whatever? Because, you know, it seemed to me that they were important the animals where they were in the environment. They're telling something about it's an it's an environmental test, and uh, it's something that uh, it would be hard to do. But if you're buying something at sales and livestock sales and whatnot, so it, it uh, well, I guess the, the the basics of it were that the mutilations as cattle mutilations, as we know them, really did start in the Upper Midwest. In the early 70s, which is exactly when the first nuclear power plants went online up in the upper Midwest in the 1970s. Mm. And in some of those cases, some of those cases, the cow was found mutilated just before the plant opened and one just after the plant opened. It's like, wow. And this is downstream downwind generally from these all these sites. Mm. And then I did, you know, I found that correlation quite a bit. Uh, and then I thought, well, in Idaho, the Snake River facility, the test facility up there, was completely ringed with mutilations. Uh, and it's like, wow, hmm, looked like somebody's kind of interested in what was going on out of there environmentally. And many other such uh, what seemed like significant uh, correlations. And then, of course, the Nevada test site, which was the site of, I think, at least 100 above-ground explosions and uh, nuclear detonations, and I try. I got the, all the tracking data and the maps and everything where all that fallout went. And I was kind of surprised that it it swept up uh, from the Nevada test site. It went more, much more north than I thought it did. In other words, it went up the Rockies into Western Canada, uh, in the same places that they're having mutilations. And it seemed to me like, uh, and it went in our country it went to the Midwest. It didn't go so much to California or the West coast, uh, Arizona, it kind of was North of that. And, uh, it did hit New Mexico somewhat and Colorado even heavier and further, uh, more further up the, the chain. And it didn't hit so much on the, on the East coast, but I did find several nuclear reactors that seem to have the same cluster of mutilations around them. So it's like, well, hmm, okay. Uh, but then uh, you get other kind of information that comes in, the synchronicities. One of your shows, I guess a recent show, was Follow the Synchronicities. Was that Alan Greenfield talking about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah, sure. I think that's what we just put up. Yeah. I'm a big fan of following the synchronicities. But, uh, uh, so then we get uh, 
Oh, now we have the drones flying over the military installations and the nuclear facilities and the nuclear power plants. And people say, oh, those are just drones. I don't even, th- I think those are, might as well be called UFOs at this point. But, uh, so that one of the, the synchronicity was the, uh, the Judy Doherty abduction that happened in Texas near, I don't know, where was that? It was out of Houston. I believe. Uh, anyway, she was, and Leo Sprinkle did the hypnotic regression. She was in a strange harvest. Back to that again, that that session, and she. I was watching the outtakes of the, the early version of the, of the film, and uh, she's there, and she said, "Oh, what?" And Leo asked, "Why are are they? Uh, why are they doing this to the cattle?" Oh, it has something to do with our nuclear radiation uh, and then the spreading. It's getting in the cows and it's getting in the people and they're worried about this. It's like, what? You know, here she is supposedly telling under hypnosis what the aliens had told her why they were doing it. I think they even used the word plutonium, as I recall, which was kind of unusual. Um, so... There again, I mean, we have the unreliability of hypnosis, but it's and, and plus the fact that I had fed Leo, Leo Sprinkle, all my material. He knew about my correlation map, and he was all with it. He really thought I was onto something, and he thought it was the aliens who were trying to do something to save us from ourselves or point out what our problems were to us or something along those lines, right? So it, the nukes kind of entered into that picture. Uh, but I eventually had to, uh, I had to discard uh, any that, even though it was astounding, I mean, I just don't have any faith in the hypnotic process at this point. I think there could have been some transference because I know Leon was aware of what I was doing. And I know he wanted that to be the answer from her. And he, and she, I believe, was trying to please him, but she was pretty convincing what she said about it all, that... Uh, and I believe that's where they also said, told her that what we were doing, setting up the bombs and whatnot, had an effect on them, the aliens. It wasn't just us. So they were concerned for themselves and us both. And it's like, oh, that's, that's thoughtful. So, uh, but somebody points out all the time, it's like, well, why, didn't they, why don't they just stop it if it's so terrible? They could shut anything down, an advanced civilization. Are you kidding me? They could pull the plug on us so fast, we never know what happened. Yeah, that's a, that, I think a lot of that goes back to the contactee. To what? The contactee era. Oh, yeah, yeah. Era of nuclear Absolutely. war. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Space Brothers. Yeah. That's all those little, those lectures, those what I call boilerplate le- environmental lectures that the aliens were always giving people uh, on their flights to Venus and whatnot. So you got to stop with the nukes, okay? We got to stop the new thing. Space lecturers. <laughs> Space lecturers. They flew all this way to lecture us. <laughs> <laughs> like thanks a lot, you guys appreciate the ride and everything. But hold <laughs> <up>. <laughs> we have to get the lecture again. Uh, but so it, this, the nukes and the UFOs and the mutes to me are all intertwined in, in a very tight way, and I, I can't quite figure out. Uh, it could well just jumping over to NIDS, for instance. Uh, I was reading a lot of their, well, I read all their material, basically. And it's part of this book I was working on, the uh, Unusual Suspects book. I read all the NIDS reports really carefully. And plus, Colin Kelleher's book, uh, Brain Trust, I believe it's called. 
so the last report that Ned's did about mutilations, after seven years of work and uh, probably millions of dollars with all the top experts and the top vets and flying all over the place and flying people here and there and uh, lab results from three different labs, on and on and on. And his final word on it was, well, I don't, uh, we don't, we haven't determined who is doing this to the cows, but uh, we think we've determined why. And it has to do with the spread of prion diseases into our food chain and into our human brains through cows. And it's a warning. And that was, I think, the last word in thing. It's a, we should consider it a warning. And it's like, okay, uh, we're warned, but who did it? Well, we don't really know who did it, and we can't really say who did it, but that's it's, somebody's given us a warning. So, I mean, okay, hmm, who, who would that be? Ourselves? Are we warning ourselves? <laughs> Is this some kind of feedback loop that goes around? It's like, oh, wow. Uh, or is it aliens warning us to clean it up? Uh, and then I, I've read across some material lately, scientific material, which is mostly what I read these days. I don't read all that much UFO stuff. But uh, some, and it's not as uh, solid as I'd like it to be, but uh, in terms of the source. But uh, the guy is a doctor, and he's basically saying something to the effect that it's a combination of the nuclear radiation and the prion disease which is just the unholy brew in our brain that just creates neurogenerative generative diseases like prion diseases, Kreutzfeldt Jakob in humans, and that it's, uh, you know, if you look at uh, Kelleher's statistics, uh, you know, the rate of dementia is something like has increased 500% in the last few years. And wow. Uh, something just unbelievable. Uh, and now they're even saying that uh, possibly COVID is, is having those kind of a, a prion misfolding properties on the brain. So we got possibly, you know, the nukes, uh, the prion disease that's spreading, and then the COVID thrown in on top of that, which is, it'll be a miracle if we have any brains left in 10 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> so drink them if you got them or smoke them if you got them, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, right. Uh, if, if our brains are just slowly melting behind all of this. Turning to turning to mush. I'm kind of feeling it now a little bit. But. Yeah, I think me too. Is, is there any uh, biological basis for why maybe these particular um, organs and organ systems that are removed might be good material to test from a, a, a bovine body. Yeah, they're perfect. Okay. It's perfect. So that would be the best, the, the genitals and, and, and uh, intestines would be the best. That okay. soft tissue. And occasionally, I didn't mention earlier that so, uh, frequently a little piece of bone or cartilage is taken from the animal. Uh, generally that comes from the ear area or a few instances where teeth are pulled and I've seen one of those myself it's like who would kill this cow and pull one of its teeth uh, this was when I saw on a road near my house in Colorado actually and I was like what the heck is this about and then I found a few others elsewhere but it seems to me like every once in a while, a, a bit of bone is taken and 
maybe in ways that are even isn't even noticed by investigators who are looking at other stuff. But uh, sometimes it's very obvious. It's like a rib or something. But uh, but uh, and then whatever is going on in the face facial area, that's all soft tissue, and that's where you would be able to test really nicely for prion and radiation issues, and the tongue, which is frequently gone. And then, of course, there's the issue of the missing blood, uh, which would tell you a whole lot about everything. And so it's uh, this material I was talking about is focuses on the role of copper in the brain, how important it is for the prion normal processes in the brain uh, to function correctly. And NIDS was coming up with and the, some other tests that were done here in New Mexico independently came up with the, this weird copper deficiency that's found in some of the, the mutilated cows that they've tested. And so, the, but the cows aren't really showing the typical uh, symptoms of copper deficiency. They seem pretty healthy, but uh, something, this missing copper thing is, is something Chris and I have kicked around for a long time, but and it just seems like that plays some kind of role. And even Nids was wondering, like, what is this? Why is this missing copper? We cannot figure this out. But anyway, what they're left with is a warning. Millions of dollars later, I could have done that for half the price. I could have given them that warning on day one. <laughs> well, you got to get the right grant writer, man. I know there's going to be a lot a lot available now with all this UFO shit. So. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, right. That's right. There a lot is a lot of funds out there. We got to talk about this, David. Um, you have your own, yeah. Guess you have your own theory about this, like the kind of the idea of the Gaia theory. It's too much to go into. Well, can we just touch the touch the surface of some of the more, um, I guess, spiritually oriented theories behind the stuff? Well, we could do a whole other show about it if you. At some yeah, point we could. Want, here's but- here's the basic. I'll give you just the basic idea. Yeah. Uh, that uh, okay the bottom line is Gaia Gaia theory and from my point of view if people aren't familiar with Gaia theory don't talk to me you know if if you claim to be an investigator of phenomena or the environment or virtually anything You've got a, a consciousness in particular. You know, familiar, familiarize yourself with Gaia theory as you know, proposed by James Lovelock in the 60s and 70s, a new look at life on Earth, in which he is giving a pretty good case that Gaia is a one large living organism uh, that has intelligence, prescience, purpose uh and acts in a coordinated way to to create the conditions the perfect conditions for life on earth for all things on earth to have the perfect ideal conditions for instance with us it's we are 21 percent oxygen atmosphere so no, no matter what happens if the sun increases like 30 percent like it has over the last several million years uh, it doesn't matter. The oxygen will stay the same. And the life error, which is basically two, 2.5 million years, whatever happens, it, Gaia finds a way. And it's called Earth System Science. So if you don't, if you don't want to say Gaia, study Earth System Science. But once you study that, you say, huh, okay. 
there's some kind of intelligence at work here. I don't even know if you can compare it to human intelligence. It, ha- it, it seems to have mechanisms, uh, what I call survival strategies, uh, that every species has survival strategies, whether they're conscious or unconscious. This goes all the way back to our hominid past. And uh, so I think one of our survival strategies is to get off the planet, uh, ultimately, and that Gaia, perhaps, this is totally speculative, you realize, uh, its goal is to keep life teeming. And what life does is it fills up every nook and cranny that it could possibly fill up in our biosphere. It's from the most, from the extreme of bile things that live in volcanic vents to things that are tardigrades guards or whatever they are living in the atmosphere and uh, things that nothing should be able to live. Life will fill up every single space available to it. That's its nature. And in in our case, if we get hit by an asteroid, and now we'd consciously know this, we could lose every bit of DNA that's ever been thrust forward on this planet. And it would be gone forever. So if, if you were thinking like, guys, uh, we better like prime these humans to get this act together and kind of spread this DNA out. Have you read the stuff about these, whatever they're called, Dyson cones or something like that, that we're, we're sending off in every direction with all kinds of DNA from Earth in it? Just thinking maybe they'll land on some planet somewhere and start regenerating. Have you, are, have you followed any of that, that story? Like, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah, I've caught just a. Uh, well, so, I mean, if you're, if, if you're, you know, if Gaia's priming us to become a space bearing civilization, which it appears to me that it is. And in, in that case, uh, then we could see that things like UFOs and mysterious mutilations and a whole range of paranormal phenomena are basically keying us for that eventuality. And it's a space age mythology and that's prevalent right now it's the ufo and it's adjunct meme which is uh the cattle mutilations and then i don't know what to do with the poor cryptids but uh i i've never quite been able to fit them into the the overall pictures like bigfoot and whatnot i mean i get chris o'brien to admit that they're paraphysical so i'll say okay uh, he he doesn't like to admit that helicopters are paraphysical i said well what's the difference between uh this bigfoot and the helicopter they're both come and go they seem to be like in one dimension and another dimension so he's finally like uh kind of humoring me that uh, uh these things are paraphysical so so where i end up with is basically the inevitability of uh recognizing other dimensions other realms that we seldom have access to. And uh, that's if we want to get after this. And I think I'm a little too old to go the psychedelic route at this point. (laughs) 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 Go full McKenna DMT to the machine elves or whatever. Uh, But uh, it seems like to me the way to do it is through lucid dreaming. And that's where I've had most success in, in understanding things and feeling part of the process or getting an idea of how it works or, uh, and th- these things just pop into my brain from out of the blue. And, uh, 
a lot of that has to do with being a musician and being you know in the creative world for years and years and i think people that are really into music and the creative fields uh, are are good candidates for researchers because they can absorb this kind of stuff and then they know it when they see it when it comes along they, they note it and they think oh wow that's different that's interesting i'm gonna write it in my little notebook here uh, anyway, so that's the long and the short of it, and it's uh, it's a provisional theory. Uh, it's got many um, extensions to it, and I don't know how else to go after it. The, the one kind of odd thing, I mean, I didn't mention George Hansen and the Trickster material, which I'm, I'm very into, and I've written reviews of his book and have talked to him quite a bit about the whole Trickster business. So I've taken it to a, a one step further, which he doesn't really agree with me, which is uh, that the trickster is actually a biological mechanism uh, to create uh, novelty in any, any situation, to create that homeostasis that the earth maintains to keep things in balance. When something gets, and McKenna and, and Valet have both toyed with this idea. They've nibbled at it, but they haven't gone full Gaia yet. Although they both mentioned it, uh, and they kind of move on, right? But it's like, well, well, let's back up and like, let's go. How exactly did Gaia do this, and how, what is the mechanism that gets conveyed through us, through our consciousness, both conscious and unconscious minds? Since we're part of Gaia, we're not independent of it. And a, a biological basis doesn't like automatically discount some kind of interdimensional or spiritual reality to it, also. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I, that that made Hanson queasy because he he said, uh, "Just leave it alone. That's scientism and reductionism, and you're taking enchantment out of the world." Right? <laughs> I said, "No, I'm putting more enchantment into the world, man. Come on." Uh, so I get accused of taking enchantment out of the world by trying to even study this stuff. Uh, or putting enchantment into the world by even proposing such weird ideas, which are to me enchanting. But uh, so we kind of ended up there, and it was all good natured and good humored. But uh, I couldn't get him to make the next step that that the trickster was in in indeed a biological force field of some sort, maybe in line with something like Rupert Sheldrake and people like that. Well, if it's part of us, then it would have to be related to our bio biology in some way. Interfaced. Yes. Yes. Oh, I forgot this one thing I wanted to get in before we got to go, but uh, I always keep forgetting to remind people that, that Lovelock and his Gaia theory, uh, somebody asked him, what are the three greatest threats to Gaia? And he, it's, he said, it's the three C's cows, cars, chainsaws cows being number one mm, okay so if, if you really i mean here's the guy that wrote the book there are 10 of them and if he's going to say the greatest threat to our world are cows then we must have somewhere in us some sort of innate hostility to knowing that and, and chris o'brien made a really basic observation about this meme that you see everywhere these days which is a flying saucer and the beam of light coming down and a cow being sucked up into the <laughs> Right. I mean, this is on the, the welcome sign to Roswell now. That's what they've used as their yeah. logo. Yeah. Yeah. There it is again, right? It's yeah. everywhere. 
David, I have to tell you, uh, I went to Japan a few years ago and they have these little machines that you put the coins in and you get the prize out of. And there was one and it had, I, I got them and they're hanging in my rear view mirror. It's a flying saucer with a cat, cat's head sticking out of the flying saucer. And then there's a little beam coming down. It's beaming up the mouse. Oh, <laughs> you've got that little item. I did. Uh, I, I oh. bought two of them right on the spot. Um, oh, that's and they've been hanging from my rear view ever since. Oh, that is too good. Well, it's, I've got all these lamps now. I've got from all over the world. People send me these things. Of the, they're really cute. And, you know, and flashing lights, a saucer, and it's sucking the cow up. And in a magnet, it's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. So what Chris's basic observation was is the cows are being hoovered off the face of the earth. <laughs> They're not necessarily being mutilation uh, fodder when they go up and they're just being removed. And so it's, uh, I was just thinking this, they have this uh, thing in Albuquerque every Christmas. It's the parade of lights, you know, bring the whole family, all this kind of thing. And they, they show it on TV. Here's our most popular uh, display. And it's what it is, is a flashing flying saucer with a cow being sucked up into it, all in lights, you know. And then the, the reporter's saying, and it's just fun for the whole family. And the, the kids love this kind of stuff. And so here's this cow going up into the, into the saucer. It's like, wow. And then somebody went and stenciled about every road sign in this state at one point. I assume it was a stencil. The ones that have the yellow signs that have the cow on them. And they went and stenciled in a flying saucer with a beam of light going down onto the cow. Hundreds of them. All these roads all over. Who does that? I mean, who really has the time to do that and why? Uh, so why is that such a novelty? Why is it so interesting? Why is it so compelling? Uh, it's just, boy, it is out there everywhere. You see it. ads all over the place. Uh, just tons of places now everywhere. Chris and I send them back and forth about every day. I found another one, found another one. It's very much in popular culture. Yeah. It's a pop culture thing. So, Well, I did want to ask you, David, uh, just about, you did mention one of the interviews with Greg Bishop. I think it was Ellsbury, Missouri. Where you oh, had, yeah. You had like several different things going on at once. There was like mutilations and yeah. strange lights in the sky. You had like Bigfoot you know, being sighted, families of Bigfoot being sighted, and all kinds of weird yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, that's that turned my head around way early in the game. Because uh, I went there with uh, some friends and uh, a couple other investigators. And we were actually going to, it was a trip, we were going to end up at the MUFON 1978 convention in Dayton, Ohio, which we did, and met Heineck and Kehoe and all those kind of people. And uh, they were all wonderful. But anyway, uh, part of that trip was to go see what was going on in Ellsbury. Uh, and that really, really changed my thinking about all of this. Because we just had the most solid citizens in this little town on the Mississippi. And they said, yeah, well, I was out there fishing on Mississippi and the 55-gallon drums, it looked like, came down the, floating down the river and looked like a formation. Then they all just took off into the air and flew away. It's like, okay, yeah, yeah, that could happen. <laughs> 55 gallon drums in, in formation out of the Mississippi, yeah. 
But at the same time, they were having mutilations all over the place and uh, around the area. Uh, really dramatic ones. We got there to see some of the aftermath of that. Uh, oddly enough, one happened uh, on a field that we had been watching that night. <laughs> we didn't see anything happen. We didn't see anything in the morning out there, and we left town. It was right under a microwave tower. And then I called back later in the day or soon thereafter, and the sheriff said, oh, you didn't see that mutilation? It was right there where you guys were camping. It's like, what? You got to be kidding. No, no, it was right by the microwave tower where we told you to camp. So, I, I mean, you know, all right. Well, there's your synchronicities. But So we had that, and we had uh, little what they were described as the uh, – children in, sil in silver suits who were playing in the woods. And then we had uh, some sort of ape-like creature, uh, Momo, they called it, uh, yeah. kicking, kicking through the town dump. And then uh, <laughs> it's just one thing after another everywhere we go. It's like, oh, my God, oh, my God. Paranormal greatest hits. High strangeness. It was, uh, it was like something out of a, a John Keel book. That uh, it's just, it really made me think, oh, and they, of course, then they had some big, weird chemical plant. I think it was <laughs> Monsanto, I believe, just spewing noxious junk all over the landscape there. Uh, so we had some level of pollution or whatever. You want, uh, wasn't the nuclear that I know of, but if somebody wanted to monitor the environment, which they might have in that instance, that would have been a way to do it. But uh, they were all really jolly about it in Ellsbury. Uh, they uh, <laughs> they would go out on the roads at night and make this party out of it, and everybody would go out with the boom boxes and uh, cooler of beer and sit there and wait for the space people to show up. And they had T-shirts with a with an alien hanging out of a flying saucer with a cow leg, you know, dripping blood. <laughs> Welcome to <laughs> Ellsbury, Missouri, mutilated cow country. We're proud of it. I mean, that's a really interesting thing, you know, and it's the same as Point Pleasant. It's the same, you know, yeah. kind of energy as uh, Gulf Breeze and um, uh, uh, out in, in Western New York in the 80s as well, where the, the town sort of embraces it and starts like feeding back into right. whatever's going yeah. on there. Yeah, it, it, gets, it gets a life of its own. And that's why I think that uh, once it starts that process, in which the memes get involved and then memes grow and then they become meme plexes. They, it gets more and more power and then it enters people's consciousness. And then I think it enters their unconscious mind. Then I think it enters their dreams. Then I think it gets some sort of connecting principle that goes on at that point, uh, which is hard, is supposedly non-energetic. It just happens. It's sort of like a quantum effect or something. Uh, I call it, well, Sheldrake called it a morphogenic field. That's how the information is conveyed amongst members of a species. Uh, and it's not by talk. It's some other realm that is communicating. But I think that starts happening. And I think uh, some these entities get kindled, what I call kindled into coherence. Once they re reach a certain critical mass of thought and unconscious thought and this is where it gets really hazy, and you know I'm no uh, no quantum physicist by any means, and trying to figure out what goes on there if that's even possible to figure that out. But <clears throat> it seems like whatever's happening there is 
It's a form of thought, thought form, perhaps something akin to a tulpa in the Buddhist tradition, and possibly these uh, coherent aggregations of bioenergy uh, develop a little life of their own and uh, maybe get out of hand until they lose coherence and disappear. So I know that's really sketchy, but uh, <laughs> there you go. That is really sketchy. I admit that. But then again, if we if we don't go to the dimensional aspect of this, uh, I just don't know where it can possibly right. go. Speaking of Keel, um, I was listening to the Desert Oracle podcast, and the guy who does it, writer Ken Lane, was referencing one of Keel's observations, I think it was, that that cows were in particular the sacrificed animal of a lot of these ancient civilizations that we come from and that you know we stopped sacrificing these animals to these gods and that these gods are feeling kind of angry about it and they're like coming back to take a few you know <laughs> well now read, read stalking the herd because this is chris o'brien's wheelhouse the, the sacrifice aspect and he's okay. really done a lot of research into this it's really interesting all the way back uh, to our earliest roots as humans, I guess. Uh, and all the cave paintings and everything along the way and all the sacrifice and the Bible and all the holy books and the role of the cow and the sacrifice. And I, I, he and I butt heads all the time about it. It's like, I just don't get it, man. I don't understand why, uh, why sacrifice is even a thing. Well, you have to appease the gods. It's like, well, I guess. I mean, things won't happen if you don't. Apparently, they determined that they wouldn't happen well if they didn't do something like that. But how did it ever jump to having, you know, having to kill warm-blooded animals and offer them to your god? Or people. <laughs> like, why? I think we just do uh, people in our civilized society, you know. Now. Yeah. Well, Chris has developed this, and it's quite interesting, actually. And uh, he's basically saying that what was was given in the past is now being taken. He says, we're not going to give it. They're, the deities, whatever they are, are going to come and take it. But that kind of ruins the point of it. The idea is the giving is the, uh, you know, paying obeisance to the, the entity and giving your prayer and your whatever. And if they just come and take your $5 bill, it's like, that doesn't teach you anything, you know. Uh, <laughs> or if they just take the genitals or and soft tissue, like what's the point of that, right? Yeah. So yeah, the blood, the blood is still the thing. And there's one aspect of that is that the, I think frequently people describe the animals as being bloodless when they're really not quite bloodless. A lot of the blood settles to the bottom part of the body, and I think it's it's a mistake. But there are quite a few cases where. I've seen a couple where there was a hole in the juggler vein that the vet pointed out. So it looks like they pumped, they got it right here and it pumped its own blood right out. And the thing is bloodless. It's like, wow. Ooh, okay. Hate to see that happen. Uh, I don't know how frequent that is because nobody really examines for those little needle holes in the neck and stuff. They go for Yeah. The I think it's more fascinating than, than so much other phenomena. The fact that this is so based in physical evidence and still such a mystery. 
that, that's that's another one of Chris's points. It's like name any other paranormal phenomena that presents this much raw, brute evidence. Evidence. I mean, it's not like a landing pod. It's not like a wisp of this or that. Or it's a. I mean, this is just boom in your face. A ton of evidence over and over and over. And, and to me, that's the one drawback about the trickster idea. It's like. It seems like it's it's too organized for for typical tricksters kind of chaotic, right? But maybe that's just what's needed in in, in this instance is exactly what's happening. But it, it sure seems awful methodical. Somebody is being is just super methodical about it and doesn't get caught ever. One of the last things I wanted to touch on was um, we talked about how this stuff is happened in different places in the country and outside the country but is there anything in particular about that area in the southwest and southern colorado northern new mexico in particular that you think lended itself to it kind of reaching a critical mass there wow good question wow uh, i mean there is quite a bit of indigenous belief that segues into those scenarios and I think it's pretty ancient and uh, pretty real, uh, Hopi and so on. They, they have their star people ideas, you know. And it's a mystical place in a lot of ways, even though it's an overused word. It's, it's got quite a mystique about it. Uh, I think anybody that spends any time here feels that. <clears throat> I mean, the place in my place in Colorado is at 9,000 feet. And I look out at Mount Blanca, which is... 14,000 some feet, right? This majestic mountain peak. It's like, I look right out at it every day. And it's, according to the Southwestern tribes, that is the place of the origin of thought. It's like, wow, I'm not even sure what that means, but it sounds pretty impressive that that's the place on the planet where thought originates. So I think, well, I guess we better watch what we think around here or else it'll get magnified as it goes around <laughs> this giant loop. Right. Uh, maybe it's the place where thought is clarified or provided or uh, some sort of oracle type thing happens. I mean, I've always wondered about it. They call it a sacred mountain. And nearby is a sacred place in the earth where they supposedly came up from out of the earth uh, to live on the surface of the earth. So it's like, oh, yeah, well, those Indian superstitions. But it's like there's something very mystical about about the place and uh, really hard to define. It's just absolutely beautiful and uh, invigorating in so many ways. And I think it does have that background of, of indigenous people that uh, are pretty in tune with, with the planet and with everything, for that matter. They still are. They're still here doing it. David, I want to. Not a, a very convincing answer, but I guess you could probably say that about any section of the country. Is it? No, I totally, I sure. totally resonate with that. I got a lot of family history from that. Oh yeah. Particular area and spent a lot of time there growing up, so I definitely understand. Yeah, it's a magical place, and I mean, New Mexico is a land of enchantment. Speaking of enchantment, uh, yeah. So I'm here. I'm trying to maintain the level of enchantment as best I can without being too reductionist. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's exciting and it's, it's a wonderful education and I can't think of any other pursuit in my life that I could possibly have done that would have 
given me what this has given me in terms of just curiosity and learning about the world, learning every aspect about the world, learning about my own psychology, consciousness, all the things that people wonder about. I just can't, this has been like a, a course in every one of those things. So there's one school of thought that these type of phenomena are there just for that very purpose, just to, for us to develop our brain and our thinking and our, our, uh, our understanding of the world. And from my point of view, the better, the more we understand Gaia, the better chance we have of actually surviving <laughs> climate change. Forget the phenomena for a minute. It's like we got to, Gaia could actually pull us out of this if we figured out exactly what those mechanisms were, if we wanted to tinker with them in any way or plead to them or whatever we want to do. Uh, but just understanding Earth system science and how it actually works and to not see ourselves as apart from that process because we're hardwired into that process. So it's not like us against it. It's, it's pulling for us. But... Uh, I mean, you get into at a certain level, you get into teleology. Like, is this all going somewhere or not? Or, I mean, uh, a lot of the criticisms about environmentalism in the early days and Gaia theory was they called it like satanic environmentalist, you know, or environmentalism or pagan uh, environmentalism that's coming to wipe out your mind and your children's mind and turn them into little pagans or something. I mean, even Schmidt, kind of the senator, kind of got on board with that after he moved on from the mutes. When he was working for the Koch brothers, he was uh, working uh, for the Heartland Institute, and they're putting up big billboards of the Unabomber, you know, on these highways, and him looking like a crazy maniac and saying, "Ted Kaczynski is an environmentalist," you know. <laughs> so it's like, please. And uh, then Schmidt goes on uh, one of those crazy uh, talk show, right-wing talk shows, and says uh, that the entire environmental movement has been infiltrated by the communists. It's like, what? Really? Did I miss something? <laughs> so, I mean, how do you become a moonwalking astronaut and come out with that kind of nonsense? Isn't there some kind of disconnect going on there? Yeah, I guess he missed his uh, ultimate transformative experience. <laughs> well, uh, David, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been uh, very, very interesting. We, I think we've only really scratched the surface. Oh, God, there's so much more. I, I would like, to, at some point, like to give, uh, you know, a detailed accounting of the Gaia theory. And Yeah, maybe we could do that yeah. on a different episode. I mean, we could have you back on. But, yeah. uh, you know, uh, in the short term, I, I want to thank you folks for doing what you do because it's really valuable that you get all this on the record somewhere. And you've got just this wonderful group of guests that come through here all the time, just boom, 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 laying it down. And you pull all this uh, information out of them and make it part of the record and the diary of our times. It's really an important yeah. function. Thank you. Well, thanks thank for you. that, man. Yeah, thank you for, for listening as well. That's awesome that you listen. I to appreciate the show. it. And uh, until we meet again, uh, let me know what happens next and I'll do the same. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to close the show out, but please uh, let everybody know where the people could find you or any of your writing. Well, uh, I'm pretty easy on the, on the Google under David Perkins, uh, either mutilations and or UFOs. I just saw a really uh, good bibliography compiled by Stephen Miles Lewis at Anomaly 
archives. Yeah, we do. We know smiles. Great guy. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just kind of looking. I was just looking through it, and there was a section of me with some photos and stuff. And he has this complete biography in there. Something I don't even have in one place. But I mean, if you poke around with Google and uh, plus buy Chris O'Brien's books. They're really good. I spent a lot of time working on them. I wrote all the forewords. It has a lot of this information and much, much more. He's got the bibliography. He's got everything anybody would want that wants to pursue this in any way. So uh, he's really been a trooper and, and worked really hard on, on all of this. And uh, so his trickster book, I was just looking at again today, and it's really well done. Really interesting. We need some, uh, we need some copies of Altered Stakes. Oh, yes, you, you win the title there. I've got the altered six books for you guys. I, I brought three of them down from Colorado. I can get them to you, but uh, yeah, uh, yeah, altered uh, state. I want to sure use that title guess. again. It's just still too good to just leave. It leave is. Back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you won with that one. True stroke of genius. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. All right. We'll carry on and keep doing the good work. All right. Absolutely. All right, thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. And uh, Chris Corey, you tell us uh, where people can find you as well. Uh, you can find me vintage UFOs on Instagram and that's it for now. But, uh, I really appreciate you guys asking me to come on and uh, tap in a little bit. This is really cool. Yep. Yeah. Thank you so much uh, for being on as well and helping us out with it. And, um, we just to close out the show as we always do. First of all, strange realities conference, October 15th through 17th at SIR Nashville. You can come meet Chris Corey. Yeah, Chris Corey will be there. I'll be there. I'll try and bring some uh, some some goodies with me too. Hopefully, yes, yes, and uh, we will be there, of course. And uh, also, we have an amazing lineup of people that are going to be presenting and speaking at the conference in Nashville. And you guys can find that at strangerealitiesconference.com. And hopefully by the time this episode is out, we will have out the uh, the video commercial as well as the audio, which we already have. So Serviel did a bang up job on that as usual. So, And also Patreon, which Serviel can tell you where to sign up for that. You can check us out at patreon.com slash conspiranormal, where for only $5 a month, you get an extra episode every week. Um, and at the $10 level, you get to find out what they do in the mystic crew that's right and uh we've got chris Corey here he actually did a presentation at our last one uh last friday and he did that on uh well i guess uh you can tell him a little bit about that chris uh i spoke about the album by the band the stranglers called uh the gospel according to the men in black and just sort of uh where that intersects with uh you know ufo and Fortean uh, culture. Uh, it's a very Keelian kind of a uh, post-punk album, and so I haven't heard anybody really talk about it much anytime lately. So it seemed like a good time to bring it up. And we're going to be posting the recording of that presentation, the video recording of it, uh, up for the patrons, ten dollars and up. So if you join now or in the future, you'll be able to see that presentation as well. Uh, at the twenty dollar level, you can. Join the ancient circle of strange realities and learn all the secrets of conspiranormalism and get an exclusive t-shirt and experience at the Strange Realities Conference as well. All right, that's it, guys. Uh, Next time, Dr. Future is going to be back. 
uh, for his six-month biannual update on the state of the world. So join us then next time on Conspiranormal. YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast.